0: Our Father, our souls have sung your praise, our lips have blessed your name, God, and we pray now that you would speak to us, that by your Holy Spirit we could hear your voice of love and truth, and so you would conform us into the image of Jesus. God, we are dependent upon you for such power to come and for such change and growth to happen in our lives, so we ask you through Jesus our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to the last day of 2017, a day of worship. I imagine that many of us are excited right now to finish up this year. The holidays are behind us, the wins and losses of this long year are done. But I do want to encourage us one last time to be present, to slow down, and to be centered in this place with these people and for what God may have to say to us this morning. Over the last few weeks for our Christmas sermon series, we've looked at several different scripture passages related to how God, through Christ, meets the deepest longings. Of the human heart. So we saw in John 16 that God through Jesus brings us peace. And then in Romans chapter 8, hope. And then last week, Steve preached for us from Luke chapter 2, joy. And today, we'll see how through Jesus, God provides us with the ultimate experience of love or kindness. And in order to see this, we're going to begin by looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along there, Titus is toward the very end, the end of the New Testament, the end of the entire Bible, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. If you see Hebrews or James or Peter, you've gone too far. And we'll be in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So I want to give us some context for what's going on here in Titus. The book of the Bible that we call Titus is actually not so much a book as a letter. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his young protege in the ministry, his former apprentice, Titus. So during one of Paul's missionary journeys, the Apostle landed on the island of Crete, and so you'll know where we are in the world. I have a slide for us to look at. And you see the island of Crete circled down there at the bottom. And then f- further to the left, you see the bottom of the boot of Italy, you see there. And then going east, you see Greece. And about 100 miles south off the coast of Greece, off the, from the city of Athens, is this island called Crete. And this island actually today is a part of the nation state that is Greece. Well, Paul landed there anywhere between 40 and 65 A.D., a couple of thousand years ago. And he began announcing there the good news of Jesus. And eventually, he began planting churches as many of the natives there began trusting in Jesus. And eventually, through Paul's ministry, this younger man named Titus was converted as well. And Paul began to develop Titus as an eventual successor to his ministry. Titus was going to replace Paul as the chief leader there. You see, Paul was always on the move like this, trying to take the gospel where it was not yet known. So he would preach the gospel, start churches, and once they were up and running and he had trained leadership, he would move on. Well, that's what he did on the island of Crete. He started a church and then left them. And now he's writing back to his former student in the ministry, Titus. And he's writing him in order to give him further direction for how he is to lead the church in Crete. And so now we have this book of the Bible we simply call Titus. So that's some of the context of what's going on here. And we'll be looking specifically, at, as I said, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And there the Holy Spirit writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who is there in your life that's difficult to love? Who is there in your life that's difficult to love? I think I see some spouses smiling at each other right now. I know mine would be. In an article titled Loving Difficult People, author Stacey Rayok writes this it's, It probably is not hard for you to think of a difficult person in your own life. In our broken, sin filled world, they are everywhere the coworker who is willing to do anything to get ahead including taking credit for your ideas the in-laws who always seem to be peering over your shoulder critiquing your parenting skills and offering suggestions for improvement the child who knows exactly how to push your buttons to leave you exasperated and flustered again The person in your ministry who is constantly complaining about your leadership, who thinks he has better ideas and communicates them with a sharp and biting tongue. And the passive-aggressive friend who is kind one moment and gives you the cold shoulder the next. The list could go on and on. So there's no question that each one of us could add our own story of difficult relational circumstances Who is there in your life that's difficult to love? That's the easy question. But how do we handle difficult people? That's a trickier question. How shall we relate with those in our lives who make relationship hard? Well, as we look at this letter, we find out that's exactly the question these Christians were trying to sort through. You see, apparently, the island of Crete was not necessarily the most pleasant place to live and do ministry. But the difficulty of the island of Crete had nothing to do with the island itself. If you look online at pictures of the island, it's quite beautiful, with mountains and rivers and, of course, the shoreline up against the Mediterranean Sea. The climate as well, apparently, is very suitable and avoids the extremes of too hot and too cold. Unlike this place, it's very hard. No, the the unpleasantness of doing ministry in Crete was not due to the geography or the climate. It was the people that made it hard. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes some of the people in Crete. This is from chapter 1 of Titus, verses 10 through 13. Paul writes, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, a key word in these two verses is many. It's one thing to have just a few bad apples out there, right? That's anywhere. But Paul says there are many living so shamefully in Crete. And then in the next verse, verse 12, Paul writes, one of the Cretans, Cretans being someone who's from Crete, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul's like, I'm not the only one who thinks this about these people. One of their own prophets, one of Crete's own cultural commentators evaluates the islanders in the same way. Quote, Cretans are always lying, beastly, gluttonous fools. And I love this. Right after Paul quotes this, he simply adds, this testimony is true. (laughs) Paul's like, I've been there. I spent several years starting a church on that island. Titus, the people amongst whom you live and your church exists are really kind of awful. So who is there in your life that's difficult to love? Not a hard question for these Christians to answer. But how do we handle difficult people? And maybe more specifically, how do we relate with outsiders in a way that honors Jesus? How do we as a church relate to the people amongst whom we live in a way that honors Jesus? Those are the questions that Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, seeks to answer for us. And here's how we've summarized the big idea for the sermon In a world that can be cruel, be kind. This is God's call on our lives as we seek to relate with those outside the church. Difficult as they may be, our Lord calls us to kindness. So we see this command in our first point of the sermon. Live as kind citizens. Live as kind citizens. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Remind them them being the Christians Titus is pastoring, remind them to be submissive to rulers, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So if we look at chapter 2 of Titus, we'd see that Paul mostly addresses how these Christians are to relate to one another. But now, he's addressing their relationship with, and you see it at the end of verse 2, show perfect courtesy to all people, not just those in the church. And Paul gives several aspects to what kindness towards outsiders looks like. First, he addresses, curiously, our relationship with our government. And the way Paul says we should relate to the government is submissively. The apostle doesn't say that we have to like our government or like our government leaders. Nor does Paul say here that there's one or another political agenda or political party that we should support as Christians. There may be varying views on these things. He's simply saying that our general posture toward government should be one of obedience. If they require certain taxes, pay them. If they prescribe certain ordinances or laws, follow them. Now, you may be thinking, this command is kind of hard for me because I really dislike certain things and certain people that have to do with our government. And to that objection, I'm sympathetic to a degree. Our government's not perfect. The people in it aren't perfect. However... I also want to challenge us that relating to our government is considerably easier than it was for these first century Christians to relate to their government. Living in the Roman Empire presented all sorts of political, ethical, and spiritual predicaments for Christians. The empire did not celebrate traditional family values, nor did they think much of religious freedom as we know it. Yet still, the apostle calls these Christians to a posture of obedience even to their Roman rulers. So inasmuch as our conscience will allow, we are to obey our governing authorities. And in this way, we relate to outsiders in a way that honors Jesus. The apostle next fleshes out kindness by telling them to be ready for every good work. So the type of kindness that God is calling us to is not occasional. Beware of the mindset that says, yeah, I took part in this charity event. I made a one-time donation. I served in this annual ministry. Therefore, I'm good for a while. I played my part. I did my good deeds, so I'm good. No, the apostle says, be ready for every good work. Paul says that our antenna are always to be up. Our good works radar is to be active. And we're to be sensitive at all times for when opportunities may present themselves to show kindness. And next, Paul says, speak evil of no one. Even those people who are worthy to be spoken evil of, don't speak evil of them. And then finally, avoid quarreling and be gentle. Have you ever heard it said about someone, man, he is just looking for a fight? Maybe it's a physical fight they're looking for. Maybe it's a verbal spat over politics or theology or business, but it's just... This spirit that seems to feed off of a fight or a controversy, that's a quarrelsome spirit. And the apostle calls us to avoid such a demeanor and instead just the opposite, be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people, even those crazy Cretans, even those people who drive you up the wall, all people. God does not want us to withdraw from the difficult people in our lives. God doesn't want us to disengage from outsiders and be just this holy huddle. Rather, in a world that can be cruel, be kind and live as kind citizens. Now, it's almost like no surprise here, right? God wants us to be kind. Shocker. But how do we get there? I mean, every fiber in our being could be screaming, I want nothing to do with this difficult to love person. So how can I, as a Christian, motivate myself to do so? And that's exactly what the rest of this scripture passage addresses. The first motivation to kindness and the second point of our sermon, recall your life before Christ. Recall your life before Christ. Verses 1 and 2, again, Paul gives this pastoral charge to Titus, remind them to show perfect courtesy to all people. And then in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Show perfect courtesy to all people, for because we ourselves were once so foolish and disobedient. So Paul roots this kindness command in the truth that we were once just as unlovely and as unlovable as anyone else. So it's not as if we've always had this moral superiority that qualifies us to pick and choose whom we will love. It's precisely the opposite. We ourselves, the apostle Paul includes himself, we ourselves were once foolish And disobedient, and all the rest of that nastiness. Christian, recall your life before Christ. Recall your life apart from Christ. Scroll backward on the Facebook feed of your life before Jesus. What would be pictured there? What would your words reveal about your soul? Apart from Christ in your life, where would you be spiritually? What kinds of personal and relational decisions would you have made? What would your language and the content of your speech sound like? Paul's like, yeah, these Cretans, these people in your community that you're called to love, they're bad. But so are we. We know what it's like to be deceived. We know what it's like to be enslaved to sinful desires. So before we get stuck focusing on how rotten anybody else is, recall your life before Christ. And then there is zero difference between us and them. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul wrote there, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing spiritually, ethically, culturally, racially distinct about us that would give us any sort of superiority over anybody else. At the foot of the cross, the playing field is totally leveled. Nobody for any reason is better than anybody else. Nobody for any reason is more worthy of love than anyone else. So in order to fuel kindness, the apostle calls us to recall our lives before Christ and to soak our souls in this truth that we are as equally broken and difficult to love as anyone else. Recall your life before Christ. Recall your life apart from Christ. The second motivation toward kindness, and the third point of the sermon, embrace the kindness of Christ. Embrace the kindness of Christ. Gratefully, Paul is not finished telling our story. Not only were we foolish, disobedient, and led astray, but then in verses 4 through 7, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Despite our awful condition, despite how unlovable we ourselves were, God's goodness and kindness appeared to us, resulting in our salvation. Christian, God saved us. From our awful condition, God gave us exactly what we did not deserve. For our misery and hatefulness, God showed us kindness in that He saved us. And the apostle is clear, verse 5, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness... So, what motivated the heart of God to show us kindness was not our good works. We are not Christians because we did or do Christian things. Instead, what Paul goes on to say, verse 5, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So, our salvation is not our achievement. Our salvation is not something we earned. What we earned, what we deserved, was wrath and judgment. Rather, our salvation was mercifully given to us. And then in the rest of verse 5 through verse 7, the apostle continues to spell out the remarkable nature of our salvation. Friends, find me another religion that's as good as this. You ready? God saved us according to His own mercy, how? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by God's grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a glorious run-on sentence. These few verses are some of the most condensed, power-packed lines spelling out all that God has done for us in Christ. Regenerated, brought to life again in this washed and cleansed way, renewed by the Spirit unto a forever fresh start in life, and the Spirit poured out richly, so there's an abundance of God's life and power in us. Not just a taste, not just a sample. And we're justified, not merely forgiven, but we are made right in God's eyes. It's as if we've never sinned before. All of this and all of this, so we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Heirs is familial language. So who is it that will inherit your wealth one day? Your children, right? So this is Paul's way of saying, Christian, you are in God's family. And as his son or daughter, you are going to inherit the wealth of his love and kindness and life. Man, we've got it good. Now, think about how this truth motivates and informs our own efforts to show kindness. We are recipients of unimaginable kindness that we did not deserve, the merciful kindness of God himself. Therefore, shall we withhold our own acts of kindness from those who don't deserve it? You see, God did not wait until we were worthy of being loved. No. He loved us right in the middle of our unloveliness. He loved us right in the moment when we did not deserve it. And so it is for us. We can't wait for those who are difficult to love to become easy to love before we love them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what good is that? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus is saying, if we don't love with this kind of merciful kindness, we're just like everybody else. We may as well just be a country club if there's no difference in the way we love. But oh, if we do love like this, the light of the world that Jesus calls us. Jesus' call on our life is to love our enemies. And Jesus' grace in our lives empowers us to do so. So who is there in your life that's difficult to love? Can you see their faces now? Can you hear the words they say? Can you see the actions they do and the attitudes they have that make them hard to love? How will you handle such difficult people? And for us as a church, how will we relate to outsiders in a way that honors Jesus? How will we relate to the people amongst whom we live in a way that honors Jesus? Both individually and corporately, the specifics are going to vary, but God is calling us to engage with kindness, a kindness that is motivated by the truth that we were and still can be just as unlovely as anybody else. A kindness that is motivated by God's own amazing love shown to us in that we are now in his family. Friend, embrace the kindness of Christ. Receive the mercy of Christ that washes over us from the foot of the cross. The cross where he took our place and gives us new life. May it be so. Let's pray. Our good and loving God, we pray now that as Paul has said Jesus is prone to do, to pour out his spirit on us, that you would do that now, God. That through Jesus Christ, you would pour your spirit out in this place, And any who are resistant to your love, any who are resistant to your kindness would have their hearts opened, would have their eyes opened, their ears unplugged, that they might receive the news of your goodness and kindness toward us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God, we pray you would do this again and again in our community and around the world, change lives by the power of your love and grace. And God, as you've done that in our lives, for so many of us, we've experienced this radical change of once being enslaved to all sorts of passions and pleasures, and yet now being drawn into relationship of humility and faith and joy and hope and peace in Jesus. God, may we now show the kind of radical kindness that you've shown us, and may those around us see there is something different about Woodside Romeo. Something has happened in history. Something has happened in our hearts that has made us a new people, full of love and life. God, do this for the glory of your name, we pray, in Jesus' name.